October 22 is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Adventist History Podcast, Season 2, Episode number 18, Modernization. Last time we talked about why Ludwig Conradi left the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Those reasons essentially boiled down to the problem he had with the sanctuary doctrine and his problem with the inspiration of Ellen White. We also talked about how Conradi tried to refound Adventism on a different foundation than 1844. He tried to refound Adventism on the Protestant Reformation. He was German. That made sense. Now, the General Conference, of course, did not buy what he was selling, and so he turned against a church that he had devoted almost all of his life toward, and he became a Seventh-day Baptist. So yeah, cheerful stuff, but it's time to move on. In 1924, there was a Canadian newspaper that ran an advertisement for a jeweler. And what's interesting about this ad is their use of a new cultural buzzword that you are beginning to hear at this time everywhere that you went. Here is what the ad read. Quote, we specialize in the modernization of antique watches and clocks. I don't know why I did a British accent there. Whatever. Modernization. That's the word. People used to appreciate what was old, what was antique. Now, we need to modernize it. Modernization meant electrification of your home. Modernization meant indoor plumbing. Modernization meant central heating. Modernization also meant new techniques in urban planning. Lawyers and lawmakers began talking about modernizing criminal law. Hospitals were being modernized. Factories were being modernized. The U.S. Navy asked for $30 million to, you guessed it, modernize their fleet. Britain began mechanizing their infantry, calling it modernization, while France began motorizing their infantry, also calling it modernization. Modernization was everywhere. Everything was being modernized. Even churches we're talking about the need to modernize. The U.S. Secretary of Labor, James Davis, preached a sermon where he said, quote, I will take my religion the old-fashioned way. We are becoming so modern that some of us are even trying to modernize God, end quote. Alluding to uh, James Davis's birthplace in Wales, he was Welsh, an American writer in Iowa shot back, quote, if God had not been modernized, Secretary Davis would now be a heathen bowing down to wood and stone. And then this Welsh writer added, a completely up-to-date God is the noblest work of man. Adventists began using the buzzword also. Emmanuel Missionary College, later to become Andrews University, proclaimed the need to modernize our dairy industry. Adventist articles began talking about modernizing the parables of Jesus, by which they meant, you know, retelling these parables in contemporary terms. Okay, Liberty Magazine warned about reactionary forces in America which seek to modernize the blue laws of the 1800s. Not everyone was on board with this quest for modernization and efficiency. Message Magazine lamented, quote, 
Practices of a few years ago are today out of date. We streamline our homes, our cars, our hats, and our furniture, end quote. Signs of the Times noted how skeptics were complaining that, quote, the church is outworn, refusing to modernize herself, end quote. So you have these two trends present in society. You have the more reactionary folks who were resisting some, at least some, modernizing trends, and you had others who were pushing hard for modernization in all of its forms, technological, cultural, religious. Modernization was the word of the day. Okay, so this is a good time to explain what I mean when I use the term modernization in this episode. And what I mean when I use this term in this episode is the process by which an organization develops at pace with both its own capacity and the world around it. I know that's not the most intuitive definition out there. It's not a great definition, but let me just kind of give some examples. And maybe the examples will be better than the actual definition itself towards helping you understand what I mean. Okay, so in America at this time, you had some big cities that were electrified. The businesses had electricity, homes had electricity in these big cities. But most homes outside of these big cities didn't have it. And so we lived with that kind of technological inequality for decades. But the nation wakes up during the 1930s and as part of the, the New Deal began a campaign to electrify every home in the country. And so they realized that some homes, right, they had this modern technology, but not all of them did. And these technological advances that happened in the late 1800s had created these huge inequalities. It wasn't uncommon to be riding your horse and being passed by a car on the road. Well, people thought we need to invest in the automobile being the future of transportation and the horse representing the past. And so policies were made and decisions were made to encourage the one and discourage the other. And so modernization was about leveling the playing field, especially when it came to technology, by lifting everyone up to the same level. It's about seeking greater administrative efficiency, streamlining governance. Governments are expanding during this time, and they're doing more and more and more for their citizens, or more to their citizens in some cases. In the case of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Adventists rejected the notion that Christian doctrine needs to modernize. There were plenty of areas, however, where they took advantage of the prevailing appetite for change to push for greater organizational efficiency and a greater role in, for the administration of the church. So from 1910 to 1930, the number of people working for the church doubled. And whenever you expand the workforce that quickly, it's difficult to maintain quality. It's difficult to maintain quality. Okay, Adventists had universities. But when we talk about Adventist universities at this point, I shouldn't even say universities, colleges, institutions of higher learning, um, they're predominantly concentrated in the United States. And after 1922, we have more Adventists outside of the United States than we have inside of the United States. And so it's just, it's not possible when you're doubling the workforce to be able to train people through your educational system uh, to, to reach kind of the quality that you, that you once had when, when dinosaurs like James White roamed the earth. And even if you could send them to your schools, right, the schools are still uh, sorting things out, 
they're still sorting things out in terms of like what it takes to train pastors. They're still discussing that, uh, for instance, at the 1919 Bible Conference. Like, how do we how do we teach future pastors? How do we train these guys? And at that same Bible Conference, of course, Arthur Daniels, who was then General Conference President, was complaining about Adventist preachers making sometimes making these incredible claims in their sermons that they just could not possibly back up. And at least in one case, Daniels is like, if I was not an Adventist and I sat there in one of these meetings and listened to this Adventist preacher, there's just no way I would believe what this guy is saying is true. Right. It just, it just, there's no way. I was like, this guy can't prove this. All right. W.W. Prescott said, that if our preachers could learn righteousness by faith, it would change not just the content of their sermons, but the style itself. I have heard sermons, Prescott said, quote, on the 2300 days that were nothing more than a problem in mathematics, end quote. The Roy Froome complained that few church leaders had any kind of real vision or pastors, right, included in that, they were just too, in in Froome's words, mechanical and doctrinarian. In other words, at least according to these three progressive Adventists, there seemed to, the problem with the Adventist ministry seems to have been that uh, they weren't highly trained, and as perhaps as a result in this post-Ellen White world, they're worried more about learning the doctrine as it was stated and formulated in the 1800s and just kind of regurgitating it. If you read between the lines of what these three are saying, the, the concern is that there just seems to be very little creativity, very little kind of vision to take these arguments forward into the 20th century, like the, that these preachers just seem content saying what has been said in the same way it's always been said. Right. I love how Prescott says that the 2300 days have become just a math problem. You know, you just got to add up these dates. You get to 1844. They're not necessarily, in his view, wrestling with the text itself. It's just a simple matter of adding up numbers there. I've proved that my view is correct. Da, 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 da. But what we need, Prescott says, is real spiritual vitality in these people. We don't have it. We don't have it. So these, these progressive Adventists had a, this burning desire to raise the quality level of the Adventist ministry. And it was really about changing the culture of the Adventist ministry uh, as well. And so while this had been a concern long before the word modernization became trendy, it reflects a very modern innovation, a, a professionalization of the ministry. Now, in 1913, the General Conference realized that they needed more pastors. Okay, church is growing like crazy, we need more pastors. But they urged conferences not to hire people who haven't finished high school. And if you have already hired them, the general conference says, then please don't ordain them until they finish high school. And this may seem like common sense to us today, okay? High school is a much uh, more foundational part of the educational experience than it, than it even was back then, okay? It, it seems like a no-brainer today. But Think about who this policy would exclude if applied retroactively. Ellen White only completed a few grades of school. James White did 12 weeks of grade school and about 29 weeks of high school. John Andrews, Uriah Smith should be fine, but probably not John Loughborough. Okay, so the, the bar was being raised to a degree that would have excluded the earliest pioneers. 
Now, the cornerstone of this new initiative was the ministerial reading course. A reading course is basically a kind of distance learning back in the day. So, for instance, the education department would select some textbooks and sell them to you. You would buy them. They'd ship them. Uh, you would read them, and then you'd get whatever books are coming next year. And the whole point was that these books would be selected to help you with your sermons, to help you with your uh, study of Adventist doctrine. There's always an Ellen White book in there, you know, these kind of things. So it's like, well, we can't afford to take all these pastors and just take them back to a university, take them back to an Adventist college. We're going to have to give them college in the field. And we actually still have a program very much like this out of the seminary called the MAPMIN uh, degree, which allows Adventist pastors who, you know, maybe they didn't get their, their MDiv uh, before they started working. And so they're already working, they're out in the field. And so it lets them do a lot of their, their master's degree online. Well, they don't have online back then. And so they send them these books and you just kind of check off. I read this book, da, 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 da. And uh, after a while you get a, a certificate at the end. It's great. All right. So there wasn't yet a, a coherent vision for theological education in the early 1900s, and there were already thousands of pastors around the world from all walks of life already in the field. They weren't going to drop everything, go back to college. And then what do you do about pastors in India or Africa, right? Areas without well-developed Adventist colleges. And so this reading plan was really progressive. They, that's actually the word they use to describe it. It's a progressive means of encouraging uniform professional development around the world. And at first it went well. Unions and conferences said they would help pay for any pastor who wants these books. 810 people signed up that first year, and that would be pastors, and, and there were administrators as well who, who signed up for this. 810 is a lot of people, okay? There's only a few thousand Adventist employees uh, at this point. So, uh, the problem is that participation plummets almost immediately. So you have that 810 people the first year. By the time 1922 rolls around, about eight years later, you have 116 people enrolled. So you've went from 810 to 116 in, in eight years. Despite the fact that in that same period of time, there are about 2,000 more pastors or evangelists than there were back in 1914. So that's when Daniels, that unstoppable administrator, leaves his presidential office unwillingly and takes up the portfolio of training pastors, right? So basically, remember, he and Spicer, they switched spots. Spicer was uh, the executive secretary. Daniels was the president. They just switched spots. And basically, the executive secretary, kind of like the vice president of the United States, uh, but but even more powerful, like say, I should say, than the VP, Basically, President Spicer just says, "Okay, Daniels, what do you want in your in your portfolio? What is it that you want to focus on?" And Daniel says, "I want to I want to train pastors. That's what I want to focus on." So, okay, the reading course had only been one of the many things the education department had to do. So it's natural that maybe it didn't get their highest priority, and and so attendance fell down. Daniels then petitions to have the program transferred to this ministerial department that he's running. And he makes this program a priority. And so in five years, Daniels recovered all of the ground that had been lost in the previous eight years. So he, he makes up those, those uh, enrollments that had been lost. What, what kind of books are these pastors being asked to read? In 1932, 
There was a book by George McCready Price, right? You got to deal with evolution. There was a book of sermons by Charles Finney, who was an old Presbyterian preacher, very, very famous preacher in the time of the Second Great Awakening before William Miller. There was also a commentary on Ephesians by G.G. Finley, who was a British theologian, not an Adventist. And finally, there was counsels to parents, teachers, and students by somebody named Ellen White. Now, you'll notice that only two of these four books were by Adventist authors, and this was how it worked, right? You read a book each quarter, you filled out a report, turned it in to somebody, and at the end, you got a certificate. Fantastic. And Adventists had these reading courses. They had reading courses for teachers. They had reading courses for church elders called the auxiliary course. They had reading courses for young people. You name it. I mean, like this was their way of, of training people. And it was, I don't want to, I don't want to portray this as like a deeply coherent vision because they didn't have a reading course exactly for everybody, but for a lot of these different kind of constituent groups in the church, young people, church officers, teachers, pastors, they had a plan to raise the floor of knowledge for almost the entire church, right? To keep the Adventist church learning and growing together. And slowly, we're going to kind of raise the base level of, of what we know about the Bible and, and what we know about the church. We're going to raise that higher and higher and higher. Well, how are these reading courses part of the, this, this modernizing mood, you may ask? Because it was in line with this overarching social movement towards efficiency, towards professionalization, towards uniformity in training. The goal of the reading courses was to run preachers from around the world through the same intellectual assembly line, although I should add that there were different books used for different language groups, depending on what they could find in German or what they could find in Spanish. So the reading courses were part of this the same effort that ultimately led to the creation of the Advanced Bible School on the campus of Pacific Union College in 1934. Now, the Advanced Bible School ran for 12 weeks during the summer. The 20 or so students were taught church history, biblical languages, English, public speaking, so on. And of course, Daniels was there because he wouldn't miss this for the world. The school returned to, to PUC the next summer. This time there were 50 pastors and teachers and others who showed up representing half a dozen nations. And various teachers taught on systematic theology, research methods, how to speak to a radio audience, and so on. And this thing was starting to get some momentum. Well, the next year, the school was moved to Washington, D.C., and then finally to its permanent home at what is now Andrews University, where it would shortly be known as the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. Well, we've come a long way from old William Miller's creed that all you need is a Bible and a concordance, right? I mean, I don't, I don't say that with any kind of judgment, but just simply to show you how Adventism is professionalizing, how it's changing. Of course, Adventists in the 1930s would tell you that you, all you need is the Bible and common sense, right? They're never going to deny that. But they still taught you systematic theology. The world had changed since the 1840s, and people were asking harder and harder questions, okay? William Miller didn't have to deal with evolution, despite the Adventist dream to raise this knowledge floor of Adventism, this modernization project with its seminary and reading courses only ended up raising the knowledge of parts of the floor. And this knowledge gap between pastors who are now learning Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and early church history uh, you know, and, and, and how to deal with technology, right? Like how to be on radio. They're learning all of these skills. They're learning all of this history. They're learning all of this stuff about the Bible, reading much more Ellen White than the average church member now. 
Uh, this, this It created the knowledge gap between the pastors and the members, and this knowledge gap kept growing and growing and growing. And I think this had the effect of enabling pastors to tackle more complicated issues, right? Because now you can speak more intelligently to the, to the issue of evolution than you could in 1900. But it also had the effect of isolating pastors. Okay, you know Hebrew now. You know the history of the early church. You can tell me what the creeds, uh, you know, Nicaea and Chalcedon are. But chances are, man... Your members don't care about either of those things. So who do you have to talk to? And of course, it made it easier to be suspicious of what these pastors are being taught in the seminary, what books they're reading. Many of these books I heard aren't being written by Adventists. And then they're coming back to my church out here in the country using these strange big words and using these Bible translations that are missing verses. Okay, that one will come. Look, it's no accident that the fundamentalist Adventist, B.G. Wilkinson, published his, his book, Defending King James Onlyism, around the same time that the GC was trying to establish a seminary teaching systematic theology. Okay, you have these two forces emerging in Adventism, each trying to push the church in different directions. Each very much still present within Adventism today, but we're not going to go there. All right, there were other campaigns to modernize. The church began developing a working policy in 1926. Woohoo! A list of fundamental beliefs came out in 1931. Woohoo! And then a church manual appeared in 1932. You guessed it. Woohoo! More efficiency, more organization, right? More developing of the church bureaucracy. Well, this thread in our story is even more interesting when you consider the history of these things. Uriah Smith, which, by the way, that's what we're here to do. Anyways, Uriah Smith wrote the first list of 25 Avenist beliefs, what he called the fundamental principles of the church back in 1872. Smith was careful to say that this was a summary of Avenist beliefs, not a creed. It was merely a device to help explain to other people what Avenists believe. Thus, it was descriptive by design, not prescriptive. Smith's list was revised, reprinted, 1889 Adventist yearbook, except this time there were now 28 fundamental principles, and the church could uh, publish this list because there was, as far as church leaders knew, this is what they said, they believe every single Adventist, as far as we know, believes these 28 things. Well, the list of fundamental principles appeared off and on throughout the next few decades. Sometimes it would be in the yearbook at the end of the year. Sometimes it would not be. And it just disappeared entirely, it seems, in about 1914. Well, Adventists seemed not to be able to make up their minds. It's like they wanted two things. They wanted a statement of belief so that they could show other Christians what they believed, right? And you can understand why that's helpful. Somebody says, what do you guys believe? And you could, you know, now suddenly you've got to think of these, these 25 things. It's just easier if you had something printed you could just hand them, hand to the newspaper person who's asking about you, hand to the other preacher in town, uh, this is what we believe, and I'll be happy to talk with you about any of these. That's a lot easier than having to come up with it from memory every single time somebody asks, what do you Adventists believe? Okay, so it made sense. So they couldn't keep up, they couldn't make up their mind whether they, between, between that, having this device, having this convenience, um, between that, but also they didn't want a prescriptive list of beliefs that would end up being used as a creed. 
So one year the beliefs appear in the yearbook and the next they don't. It's like they just didn't quite know what to do with it. We want it to be there in case you need it, but we don't want to shove it down your throats. By 1930, Avenus in Africa requested such a statement of belief, something they could hand out to people, said, hey, we haven't seen this in a couple decades. We need this sheet of paper. So the fundamental principles were revised yet again, this time down to 22, and they were reissued in 1931. This time, they would stick around until 1980 when church leaders rewrote them yet again into the 27 fundamental beliefs, which would later become 28 fundamental beliefs, which is where it stands today. So it's not that this list of beliefs was new, but it was newly official. They moved from the back of the yearbook, where they had been, where they were almost an afterthought, to the front of the yearbook, where they were among the first things that you would read when you opened it. Writers began quoting the beliefs as authoritative in their articles, and though these fundamental beliefs didn't have the form of a creed, for many Adventists, they had the function of a creed. And the church had been trying hard to avoid that conclusion, to avoid that function for 50 years. But at some point, it's like there's just too many of us. We're spread around the world. Uh, we need some kind of a statement. It was just inevitable, simply inevitable, that this descriptive list of beliefs would be taken to be definitive. Now, the purpose of working policy, as GC President William Spicy Spicer explained, was simply for, you guessed it, organization and efficiency. The GC makes a lot of decisions each year, and wouldn't it be great if we gathered all of those decisions together so we had something resembling a consistent body of policy? Shucks, we could even carry them around in what Spicer called a little pocket pamphlet. And he was right. It was short. It was just 63 pages. That was the first working policy book, 63 pages. There's no way this book is going to grow to be a thousand pages, right? Right, Spicy? Right? Hello? Anyone? Look, Adventists like to make fun of working policy, but it made sense at the time. And again, like the fundamental beliefs, these things have a way of transforming over time into an Adventist Talmud. No comment. Now, when it comes to the church manual, ah, well, that's, that's an even more interesting story. Because a team of Adventist leaders, a trio, developed a manual early uh, in the 1880s, which was, like Uriah Smith's fundamental principles, largely descriptive, right? Like, we've, we've been to a lot of churches. This is generally how we operate as Adventists. So they're just kind of describing church life. And it, it covered the nominating process, how to transfer church membership, how communion services go, that kind of stuff. This was a general conference project requested at a general conference session. Many were shocked, therefore, to find the General Conference absolutely rejected the manual when it was it was given to them. I mean, this the whole manual was printed in the Adventist Review for the entire church to read. Okay, it wasn't done in secret, wasn't done by surprise. It was printed for the entire church to read, and then the General Conference says, "Never mind." And George Ida Butler, the old war horse, gave reasons on behalf of the General Conference. Right, he was the president then says that they were worried that this book, this manual, would end up functioning as a creed. They were worried it would end up being an authoritative uh, source with churches daring not to depart from it, even when it might make sense for them to depart from it. 
And of course, no one intended for it to be a creed or the final authority on anything, but just as a guide. Butler was not fooled. These guidelines would, quote, grow in number and authority till accepted by all, they really became authoritative. There seems to be no logical stopping place. When once upon this road till this result is reached, their history is before us, we have no desire to follow it, end quote. We're already united, Butler would go on to argue, around the things that matter. We have no need for uniformity. And then he ended his explanation for why the manual would be rejected with these words. It probably will never be brought forward again, end quote. A prophet, Butler was not. The manual idea was brought forward again by J.H. Wagner in 1887, just a few years later, by H.M.J. Richards in 1906, by John Loughborough in 1907, by James Adam Stevens in 1922. It's not like this idea slept for a really long time. You know, Butler's like, we don't want a manual. We're never going to have a manual. Let's not talk about this ever again. And a few years later, you know, it's like somebody raising their hand. Can we talk about this? And then, um, you know, 15 years after that, 20 years after that, a year after that, you know, can we talk about it? Can we talk about it? Can we talk about it? And I'm not even telling you the whole story here. I'm not even mentioning all the different attempts to write a manual that, that took place since then. Certain Adventists just wanted a manual badly, and they finally got it in 1932. Uh, Gail Valentine uh, has done the research here and reports that there seemed to be no awareness that the idea of a manual had been rejected on principle by Butler and the General Conference 50 years before. So in other words, when it was voted in in 1932, just seemed to be no awareness that Adventists had at one point rejected the idea of a manual. So the Adventists got their, their seminary, their working policy, their manual, and their fundamental beliefs. They got them all with their eyes open, knowing full well what the downsides of these things might be. Arising when Adventism arose, they could clearly learn from the trajectory of other churches and organizations and governments they could see how movements turned into institutions and slowed down. They could see how hard it was for institutions to change. And they promised that, that they wouldn't take that path. But, but whenever they arrived at the crossroads, they inevitably took the path towards institutionalism that everyone else took. Same path. Hoping that future generations of Adventists would resist the urge to treat any of these documents as substitutes for their own good Christian sense. But alas, it wasn't meant to be. You see, Adventists had modernized. And once you modernize, there's no going back. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History 
conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So if you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour. So I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>